I was, uh, was saying in the first service that um, last night there was a football game. And to me, it was important. Uh, and my team was playing. And uh, by halftime, they were getting destroyed. And it was depressing and discouraging. And I was literally falling asleep. And I thought to myself, you know what? You're going to get up and worship the Lord in the morning. You're going to get up and preach in the morning. Just go to bed. This game is over. Your team's down by a million points. And so I went to bed and uh, woke up to a bunch of texts saying, can you believe that game? <laughs> and my team scored a million and one points in the second half and won 67 to 63. And, and I missed it. And I was thinking, what a bummer to miss that. Like, you know, my team doesn't win very often. <laughs> and it is such a bummer to miss that. And then I thought this morning, um, as we were singing, I thought, you know what? I would rather miss a thousand great football games than to miss one time of singing with God's people, worshiping the Lord and giving Him praise. What an incredible blessing it is just to be able to worship Him with all of our hearts. So praise God for that. I want to start with a question today. Um, what would you rather do? Would you rather watch a great movie or would you rather read an Excel spreadsheet budget report from your company that you work for? Which would you rather do? Is there anybody? Raise your hand if you'd rather read a spreadsheet. <laughs> she must be an accountant, right? <laughs> um, so that's the thing. Uh, there's, something, there's something special about stories that grip us. Now, here's the thing. Take that spreadsheet. That's really important. It's full of data. It's full of facts and full of information. You may need that information desperately to do your job. You may need that to know how to invest. You may need that to know like what you can do to, to be financially secure. All of that stuff is really, really important stuff. So now how many of you would rather read the spreadsheet than watch a movie? No change, right? S see, that's the thing. The Bible is full of really important stuff. And God doesn't choose to give it to us in spreadsheet format. He chooses to give it to us in all kinds of genres and all kinds of styles and all kinds of types. But the primary way in which truths are communicated in Scripture is story. God tells stories. And as you read the Bible from beginning to end, what you're doing is you're being invited to engage in God's story of how he has been interacting with people all along and how he intends to interact with people moving forward. And we get entered into that story and there's something in our brain that connects with the story that drives it deeper into our hearts. So let me, I want to illustrate this for you. So watch the screen. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So here's the thing. I, I saw this video this week, and, you know, it's just extremely basic animation, no auditory conversation, just some goofy music in the background, right? Simple as simple can be, and yet what struck me when I watched it was, oh my goodness, that video in three minutes 
just did a better job than I did last week in my sermon <laughs> of teaching the same point. Last week's sermon was about a life of sacrifice and how God calls us to live a life of sacrifice and what a blessing it is to be able to live a life of sacrifice. And yet, you watch a three-minute video, that video will probably stick in some of your heads for a long time to come. And, and it's so easy for, you know, just basic teaching what we read in books, what we read in the Bible, what we hear on a podcast goes in, our, in one ear and out the other and it's gone. But there's something about story that digs deep into us. And I did some research on this this week and discovered that scientists are making these great discoveries about what's going on inside the brain and that they can now literally watch the activity of the brain while certain things are going on and see what's happening. And what they've discovered is that there is a part of the brain that lights up with energy and activity when you tell a story. The interesting thing is that while you're listening to the same story, your brain lights up in the same place. There, there's something in story that reacts in the brain in such a way that it literally just sort of takes root in our memories. And it gets from our head to our heart, and it has to get to your heart before it can go out through your life. And so it's interesting how story is so powerful as a way of teaching. And so that's why we're starting this new series today on the parables of Jesus, because Jesus was the best storyteller ever, and he constantly told stories. And it's interesting because um, most of us know intuitively that we learn best through stories. And no teacher has ever understood that better than Jesus. And you wonder why? I'll tell you why. He designed the brain, right? He actually designed our brains to work a certain way. Doctors and scientists now are just starting to scratch the surface of how the brain works and what's going on. And all they can ever do is step back in awe and go, wow, this is the most incredible thing ever the human brain. Jesus designed our brain, and part of the primary reason for our brain's existence is so we can know him. So he designs our brain to, to work in a certain way so that his truths will get into our lives in a certain way, and then when he gets the opportunity to teach or preach, what does he do? He consistently tells stories. Jesus is just a constant storyteller, and his stories are often referred to as parables in the Bible, and um, those parables, a lot of them are ones that you remember that, that stick in your mind, in your heart. There's no way, I don't know how to count the parables of Jesus in Scripture. If you look up 10 different articles on how many parables did Jesus tell, you will get 10 different answers, because it all depends on how you define a parable. So for our, for our points today, I want to start by kind of giving us some definition of parable. We're going we're gonna to spend a little time in the classroom, if you don't mind, as we launch this series, because until we understand some ground rules for reading and understanding and applying parables, we could easily get lost. So I want to make sure we get 
some of that stuff straight. So I want to give you four things that you need to know about the parables of Jesus, all right? So if you're a note taker, these are things to write down. These will help you the rest of your life whenever you open your Bible and you read and you find Jesus is speaking in a parable. You can go back to these four rules and they will help you to understand. And these are the rules that we're going to apply as we're going into digging into the parables in this series, okay? So we're going to start with this. The first point I want to make is that the parables of Jesus usually have one primary point. He tells these stories to make a point. And it's really easy to take little nuances of the stories that Jesus tells and run off in all kinds of directions and get 20 different lessons out of one parable that Jesus told. That was not his purpose. He is always telling these stories to make one point. So the big thing that we have to do when we read a parable of Jesus, it might be a parable about farming, it might be a parable about the weather, it might be a parable about a wedding. He tells all these different parables, but those stories are obviously not about farming, and they're not about the weather, and they're not about weddings. What are they about? Whatever the point is, right? So our job when we read a parable of Jesus is to always ask, what's the point, okay? So begin by asking, what's the point? Second thing is, the parables of Jesus are not allegories. Now, this gets a little confusing because uh, you have to go back to your high school English class to remember what's an allegory. So let me help you with that. I will not do what I did in the first service. I pulled a middle school English teacher out of the audience, made her come up to the front and tell us what an allegory was. And she went, uh, um, I, I used to know that. Um, and so I'm not going to do that this time. I'm just going to tell you that... Uh, if you look up the word parable in the dictionary, you might find that it says an allegory. And that is not a good definition for Jesus' parables. So let me tell you, uh, an allegory is basically a story that is symbolic in nature where all of the key elements of the story symbolize something else. So in an allegory, everything symbolizes something else. Uh, in Jesus' parables, they are symbolic, but only to make the point. Not every detail is something else. And whenever you read Scripture, when you read it allegorically and you see it as an allegory, it will lead you off in all kinds of crazy, crazy directions, and you'll get confused. Let me give you an example. There's a well-known parable that Jesus told called the parable of the sower. And in this uh, story, Jesus says there was a sower who went out to sow some seed and he was scattering seed. And as he scattered seed, some fell along the road, some fell along the rocky path, some uh, fell among the weeds and got choked out, and the other fell on good soil and it produced a great crop. Okay, that's basically the story, the parable of the sower. If you read that as an allegory, you would look and go, okay, what does the road represent? The road represents choices in life. We can go down various roads in life, and so these roads are choices. So if we make wrong choices, we're going to end up far from God, and His Word is not going to get rooted in our life. The roads represent choices. Now, of course, rocky soil, as we all know, represents the movie Rocky. <laughs> and, and so anyone who's seen the movie Rocky at least three times is out of the kingdom of heaven. That's the point there. Um, 
and the weeds, of course, that says choke out the word of God. So that must be referring to choking someone. And so that's probably about serial killers because that's how they kill their victims. So if you're in that category, you're probably going to get killed by a serial killer. That's what that means. And then there's the good soil. And we all know that the good soil is in Iowa where they grow all the corn. And so if you live in Iowa, you're getting to heaven. If you don't live in Iowa, good luck to you, right? That is what you could do with that story if you allegorize it. So we need to be very careful not to make these stories say what they do not say. We have to keep coming back to what's the point. When the things in the story are representative in Jesus' parables, he tells us that. So he doesn't leave it to us to guess at all of this symbolism that is supposedly in there, which may not be in there at all. Okay, so number one, there's one primary point. Number two, they're not allegories. Number three, Jesus' parables don't stand alone. They're not meant to stand alone. Jesus doesn't tell a story to present some new truth that isn't presented anywhere else. He tells his stories to illustrate the truths of Scripture. So the whole Bible is filled with truths, and Jesus' stories illuminate those truths. So we can't just let those stories stand alone and interpret them on their own. We always have to say, okay, now that we know the point, what does the Bible say about this point? And we need to let the Word of God shine light down on this parable so that we'll understand it in light of the rest of the Word of God. Um, some people would say Jesus is teaching about the rich fool, the guy who had the barns and he filled them all up uh, and he ends up dying. And Jesus told this story and some would say, see, that's a story that says that you should not be wealthy and God can't stand people being wealthy. Except the rest of scripture tells us something different about God's view of wealth. And if you don't know what that is, go back to the last four weeks. I talked about that for the last four weeks, okay? So we have to always take these things in context. Last thing is this. The parables are told sometimes to conceal and sometimes to reveal truth. And sometimes the same parable does both. They're not always told just to reveal truth. Sometimes they're told to conceal truth. Now, take your Bibles, if you brought a Bible with you, and turn to the um, first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And I want you to find for me Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to be there most of the time today, so if you just maybe put a bookmark, a ribbon or something in Matthew 13. And uh, he's been teaching in parables, and then as we pick it up in verse 10, he's going to explain. Verse 10, it says, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Uh, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will, be, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
So what's he saying? He's saying, you know, the prophets of old said that when the Messiah comes, he will teach in such a way that there will be people who go, I don't know what he's talking about. There will be people who are confused. Even though they have ears, they're not hearing. Even though they have eyes, they don't see. They're not getting the truth into their heart. And there are people that are like that who who have rejected God, they've rejected the gospel, and they don't get it. And there's going to be times when they don't get it. And what I do, he says, is I tell them these, these parable stories so that when they hear them, they will be confused by the fact that they don't understand such a simple story, and they will wonder, what is wrong with me that I don't understand this? And perhaps they will turn and seek after God. So some people, he tells the stories to conceal truth. And in other cases, like in the case of the disciples, he says, but to you it has been granted to understand. And so these things get explained to you. Now, we're going to stay, and those are our four ground rules, and we're going to keep applying those ground rules throughout this series, but we're going to stay in Matthew 13 for our first parable of the series, and we're just picking parables randomly, uh, or at least it's going to appear that we're picking them randomly. We're not going in any order. We're not going just in one book. We're not uh, picking parables that teach on just certain things. We're trying to give a broad idea of the teachings of Jesus that came in parables. So there's going to be different topics that we're going to be discussing every week that come in these parables. So This week, I've decided the first one we're going to do is the parable of the weeds and the wheat. The parable of the weeds and the wheat. Uh, Some some would call it the parable of the wheat and the tares. Tares, wheat, depends on what your um, translation is, what it would say. But it's found in chapter 13 of Matthew, beginning in verse 24. And and I'm going to read now for a good 20 verses. So you're going to have to stay with me for a second. But follow along as Jesus presents this parable and a couple of others. Here's what he says. Verse 24, Matthew 13. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner, uh, the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, "Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares?" And he said to them, "An enemy has done this." Uh, the slaves said to him, "Do you want us to then go and gather them up?" But he said, "No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest." I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 31, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. And when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and uh, nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour uh, until it was leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, but he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares and of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, those are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. 
And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just uh, as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. For the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And he will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, there you have it. The parable of the weeds and the wheat. Now, in, you saw in my translation, New American Standard translation, instead of weeds, it says tares, right? Did anybody have anything other than weeds or tares in your translation? Weeds or tares? Weeds, tares. Tares are a type of weed. Actually, the, the Greek word there refers to a specific kind of weed, which is called darnel. Has anybody ever heard of that? Any horticulturalists here? Okay, so let me tell you about darnel. Darnel is uh, a weed that is poisonous. And uh, it grows among wheat, and the reason it grows among wheat is because it looks just like wheat. And so uh, I read an article about Darnell. This is what I do. Some people say, what do you do during the week? I read articles about this stuff. So I read an article about Darnell, and the, the title of the article was Wheat's Evil Twin. And basically, it looks a lot like wheat, but it's poisonous. Um, if you look at the picture, you can see this is a wheat field, right? And in that picture, there is both wheat and Darnell. And you can't tell where, right? And neither can anybody else looking at a distance. Now, if you look at the two plants side by side, you can see some difference, but they grow to the same height. They are the same color. They're the same basic shape. They both get this grain in the head of the stalk. They look exactly the same from a distance and when they're all woven together. And, and the problem is, in large amounts, they're deadly. Now, <laughs> the, the other problem is, in smaller amounts, they'll get you stoned. So um, this is not unlike other plants you may have heard of where you could grow and if you like bake them into baked goods or you know, consume them in some way, you get high, right? In fact, historically, some people have harvested just Darnell for that reason. There have, been, there have been communities that bake it into their bread and everybody walks around stoned all the time, okay? But in large amounts, it'll kill you. And so you really cannot, as a wheat farmer, have this stuff growing in your wheat, okay? So now you have some picture of what we're really talking about. So Jesus tells that story. There's this weed uh, among the wheat, and it's all growing together. And he says, no, don't tear it out. We're going to wait. And at the end, when it's harvest time, we're going to cut it all. Then I'll separate it, and I'll burn the weeds, and I will save the wheat. Okay, now, verse 31, he introduces the parable of the mustard seed, which is like a two-verse parable, and it's very simple. Faith is like a mustard seed. It starts out very small. It grows very big, and then he moves on to the next one. Faith, there, the kingdom of God, is like a, a, a woman who puts a little bit of leaven into a lump of dough, and all it takes is a little bit of leaven, and you knead it through the dough, and pretty soon the whole dough rises because the leaven spreads everywhere, right? Both of these are very simple, very straightforward, easy to understand, but but the one about the weeds and the tear, or the weeds and the wheat, um, his disciples come to him and they say, "We don't get this one. Can you explain this one 
to us, right? Verse 36, then he left and the crowds went into the house and his disciples came and said to him, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And then Jesus sets out to explain. Now remember I told you, these are not allegories, but when there's a lot of symbolic stuff, Jesus will explain what the symbols mean. And that's what he does here, okay? So verse 37, he tells us that the sower is the son of man. Now who is the son of man? Jesus, okay? So he says, I'm the sower, all right? And the field is the world. Now, make note of that. The field is not the church. This is a commonly misinterpreted parable, and one of the ways it's commonly misinterpreted is that we look at it as if he's talking about the church and as if he is saying, hey, in the church, there's some real wheat and there's some weeds that pop up in the church. We need to get those weeds out of the church, otherwise the church will be destroyed. That is not what he's saying. That's not what he's talking about, and he explains it and says, it's the world. It's all the people in the world. Now, that includes the church. It includes Christians, but it's not just the church, okay? Moving on. Uh, verse 38, the seeds that grow into wheat or weeds are people, and the wheat is the family of God, and the, uh, the tares is the family of the enemy. That's what he says. Uh, verse 39, how did these weeds get there? They were sowed by an enemy. Who is the enemy? Jesus says the enemy is Satan, the devil, okay? Verse 40, the reaping takes place at the end of the age. So there will be a time at the end of the age, the end of the age, the time when Jesus comes back for his church, there will be a time of reckoning. There will be a time where people will stand before him and he will judge, right? That's verse 40. Verse 41 through 43, how's that judgment gonna take place? He says he's going to give authority to his angels and tell them what to do and they're gonna separate the people the way that weeds and wheat would be separated and there will be some who are cast into fire and there will be some who shine on in the glory of their father. That's the story and he explains it. So we don't have to sit around and go, hmm, what do all of these things mean? Which by the way is why I picked this as the first one because I needed something that was I couldn't mess up. So since Jesus already explains it, my job is half done already. So what do we do when we read a parable? We get to the end and we say, what is the point? Okay, here's the point. It is not up to me to divide people and judge people. God will do that at the right time. This is one of the many things in life, judgment that is best left up to God. That's the point, okay? Now, let's let the rest of Scripture educate us about this. Let's understand what Scripture really teaches on this topic. How are we supposed to respond if we recognize that out in the world, for lack of a better term, to borrow the, the phraseology of the parable, out in the world there, there's wheat and weeds. There are some people who are followers of God, and there are other people who are not followers of God right? And what are we supposed to do as followers of God when we encounter people who are not followers of God? This is a practical question for us, right? If the world is filled with, with uh, wheat that, that is wheat and then weeds that look a lot like wheat, how are we supposed to distinguish? And when we distinguish, what are we supposed to do about that? And so I'm going to just give you a couple of things. Number one, Scripture would teach us, do not avoid such people, Okay, yep, you heard me right. I didn't say avoid such people. I said do not avoid such people. 
That's the teaching of Scripture. Don't completely isolate yourself from people who are not followers of God. Too many Christians have isolated themselves from those who are irreligious or people of other faiths or, or people who are just outwardly antagonistic toward God. And we isolate ourselves as much as we can. And there's this sort of Christian ghetto mentality that can leak into the church that says we're supposed to live in our little, our little happy fellowship place and put walls up around us so we don't have to bump into any of those bad people out there. And there's a lot of Christians who take that approach, and especially it's difficult when you have children and you're trying to protect your children from the influence of other people who believe differently and you don't want them growing up with the wrong ideas and you don't want them getting into any trouble. There's this tendency that says, I want to just pull them in like a mother hen and I want to protect them and I don't want them to ever have to deal with anything out there in the world or ever meet anybody who believes anything different than what we're telling them they need to believe. And that's an easy thing for us to do as Christians, we're trying to protect ourselves, we're trying to protect our kids from isolation, but it actually works against the cause of the gospel when we do that. Let me show you what I mean. Just leave a marker there in uh, Matthew chapter 13, and I want you to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's just maybe a half a dozen books to the right, 1 Corinthians. Acts, then Romans, then 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a little something about uh, 1 Corinthians. We have in our Bible two letters from Paul to the Corinthian church, 1 and 2 Corinthians, right? What you may not know is that 1 and 2 Corinthians are not really the first and second letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. Paul wrote several letters to Corinth. We only have two of them. And so the ones that we have we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But 1st Corinthians is not the first letter that he wrote to them. In fact, in 1st Corinthians, he refers to previous letters that he wrote to them, okay? And that's what he's doing here in chapter 5. Pick it up with me in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourself. He quotes the Old Testament. Now, if we had time, we'd go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he is actually chastising the Corinthians for letting sin run amok among their church, for not holding a standard of righteousness for their own behavior as Christians, right? He even says, in, he says there's even the immorality in your church is so pervasive that it's even reported that you've got a guy in your church who is sleeping with his stepmother, and everyone knows it, and no one has done anything about it. So that's what he's saying when he's saying, remove the evil person from your midst. He's saying you have to actually stand up and hold one another accountable as the church. But he goes, I certainly didn't mean to stay away from people who are outside the church. You'd have to go out of the world to avoid such people. In fact, if we think about what Jesus taught us about being his followers, and I say this all the time, we are the light of the world. You don't send light into a light place. 
You send light into a dark place to bring light, amen? That's how that works. He expects us to have relationships that are not all Christian. Now, your most key relationships, your spouse, your best friend, the people that you go to for counsel, I highly recommend that those people would be people who are walking with Jesus and trying to help you walk with Jesus. But we need to have real, genuine friendships with people who would never darken the doors of a church on a Sunday morning. That's what he calls us to do. That's what we're supposed to be about. And so he's, he's clarifying in these verses, 9 through 11, um, you know, there's, there's a, a, a movie, it was out, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago by an M. Night Shyamalan movie called The Village. Now, I don't know if any of you ever remember seeing this movie, but, but it's, it's taking this point, right? In this movie, sorry about the spoilers, it's a 10-year-old movie, too bad for you. Um, so in this movie, though, you have these people who live, and as far as you know, they're the only people in the world. They live in this village, and their village is it. And it's surrounded by a dense forest, and in the forest, there are people eating monsters, and so they warn their children from the time of birth, never, ever go outside of the village, never go into the forest, and they have stories to tell about these monsters who ate the children in the previous generation and all of that, and they scare the children to death, so the kids will stay there. And, and as, the, as the movie ends, you come to find out that that's not the whole world, it's actually modern day, it's just in the woods somewhere far away, and that if you span, pan the camera out, you will see that society is all around them, but they are trying to isolate themselves from society. Why? Because some bad things happened in the generation past. Some of their kids got on drugs. One of their kids died in a car accident. Some of their, their kids ran into trouble in the wrong crowd, and they're trying to protect their kids, and so they're, they're isolating them in this little forest, and the results are disastrous. And, and that's really the same story Jesus is trying to get across to us here. We need to not isolate ourselves because those people out there, they're the reason we're here. They're the reason. Jesus sent us into this world as ambassadors for Christ, as missionaries, if you will. I mean, can you imagine being a missionary and you say, look, we're going to move to the, the deepest jungles of the Amazon. We're going to uproot our family. We're going to go. And, and then as soon as you get there, you just start trying to avoid people. You get there and you're just always hiding from those villagers. You're always hiding from those tribal people because God knows they believe wrong things. and You don't want them to infect you with their beliefs. That is the opposite of what a missionary does. We need to realize what God has called us to be. And in verses 12 and 13, he says, basically, it's not my place to judge others. God will do that. And, and who are these others? Immoral people, it says. So, so just go ahead and get a picture in your mind of whatever you think immoral people is and stop judging them. That's what God is calling us to do. So number one, don't separate ourselves from them. And number two, don't attack them. Remember the workers came and said, you want us to go in and rip out all those tares? And he said, no, no, absolutely not. Because if you rip out the tares, you will rip out everything. It does more damage than good. So we're gonna have to wait and let them grow up. We are called to make judgments. Let me be clear about that. 
We have to judge all the time. We judge between right and wrong. We judge between good and bad. We try to discern what we should do in certain situations for our own lives. We're commanded to flee temptation and flee idolatry and all sorts of evil. So we are expected to make judgments. Don't misunderstand what we're saying. We're expected to make judgments, but we are told here not to render judgment upon people. We are to judge between right and wrong. We're to judge between good and bad. We're, we're to make these judgments, but we are not to render judgment. We're not the one who carries out the judgment. And I don't decide who's good or bad or deserving of judgment. God does that. Let me tell you something really quick. I'm not qualified to judge anybody's heart. And in case you don't know it, neither are you. We need to know that. But some Christians think it is our job to be watchdogs for Jesus. And, and we think it's our job to just start barking and yipping as soon as we see somebody who's not following the rules of Scripture, somebody who's not doing things the way we think that ought to be done, somebody who's not living like a godly person. We make a lot of noise and a lot of stink about that. We try to make sure that we call people out. That's what a lot of Christians think they're supposed to do. I was, I was thinking about that this week, and I was reading 2 Timothy. Flip over, if you want to, to 2 Timothy. If not, just write it down in your notes, and you can look at it later. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, here's what he says. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Here's the difference between wheat and tares and people. Sometimes with people, tares become wheat. Right? Can anybody say amen from personal experience? Sometimes tares become wheat. Listen, most of the people in this room could be the poster child for what it's like to be a tear at one point in your life. I'm telling you, I could be. If you knew me before I knew Jesus, you would, I would be one of those guys. You would tell your kids, don't play with him. You would tell your daughter, don't date that guy. You would tell your son, don't hang out with him. I'm the scary guy. That's who I was, but I am not any longer who I once was because God is a God of transformation and he takes the broken and the hurting and the damaged and the immoral and he turns us into people who can shine forth for our Father. That's what he does. So before we stand back and start judging people who are still in the terror category, let's just remember we used to be in the terror category too. And aren't you glad he didn't uproot you before you became wheat? I am. Think of Saul of Tarsus. He was, he was a blasphemous, murderous Christian killer. That was what he did. That was his job. He went from city to city wiping out the church. That was what he did. That was when he was Saul of Tarsus. But along the road to Damascus, he met Jesus Christ himself face to face and his life was transformed and his heart was changed and he was born again and he became the great apostle Paul. So let's not lose hope. You may have a teenage child who's just wayward and away from God. I want to encourage you, keep praying. Don't lose hope.
You may have a friend who has, who has just always said, I don't want to hear that Jesus stuff. I don't want to hear that religious stuff. Don't lose hope. You may have a parent who is now getting up in years and you don't know how much time they have left and they have still not responded to the gospel. Do not lose hope. Do not stop associating. Do not stop loving. Do not stop reaching out. Do not stop praying. Do not stop caring because all of us who walk with Jesus are an example of what God can do to transform a life. Don't lose hope. So, you may not care much about agriculture. These stories, Jesus tells a lot of farming stories. These stories, you may not know the difference between wheat and corn, let alone wheat and darnel. So perhaps a quick little story about wheat in a field and a bunch of weeds has not ever meant much to you. But now that you know the point Jesus was making, you see things a little differently now? Now that you realize that Jesus is saying that it's not our place to render judgment on people, it's not our place to separate and categorize people in our hearts, now you can see that this little story actually has a lot to teach even city folk like us. Because in the Christian church, far too many people are known for being judges rather than for being grace carriers. I ran across this study a couple of years ago. I think I even shared it on a Sunday morning, but I want to share it again. It has... Uh, relevance. The Barna Research Group did a survey of Americans between the ages of 16 and 29 a couple of years ago. And they asked just this question, one question on the survey. Here's what it was. What words or phrases best des- describe Christianity? Man on the street, ages 16 to 29. What word or phrase best describes Christianity? 91% of the people gave the same answer. And you know what it was? Anti-gay. The first thing that came to their minds when asked, what is Christianity about? They basically said, I don't know, but I know they hate gays. Wow. That blew my mind. And then what really blew my mind is that they separated it out in the survey to determine what percentage of people who were actually uh, Christians in that age group how they, how they answered the question, and 80% of them, when asked, answered anti-gay. Churchgoers. Now, that's bad. Why is that bad? Well, first, because the Bible doesn't teach us to hate gay people. Number one. In fact, it teaches exactly the opposite. And number two, because almost everybody under the age of 30 in the category of the people who was asked, almost everybody under the age of 30 in Southern California, this is not an issue to them. These are people. See, if you're 65 years old, chances are you don't know anybody that's openly gay. You don't have any friends that are openly gay. You've never really talked to anybody who's told you that they're an out-of-the-closet gay person right? But if you're 25, you have gay friends, okay? So, so when I talk to my kids on this topic, I might be talking about this as though it is just a category, but they're seeing their friends, people for whom Jesus died, people they love. And so 
And so, yes, does the Bible speak about the issue of sexual sin? Of course it does. And does it denounce sexual sin? Of course it does. That's not the question. But people out there in the world, in this field, they think that the mark of Christianity is hating different people. And the reputation of Christians is that we do not love them, we oppose them, we hate them, we judge them. And really that's the key word, judgment. Judgmental. And they know that Jesus taught us not to be judgmental. Okay? They know what he taught on this. That's why people are so often saying, I have no problem with Jesus, it's his people I have a problem with right? Have you ever heard anybody say it the other way around? Have you ever heard anybody go, you know, I love church. It's Jesus I can't get with. <laughs> Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever goes, you know what? I can't, well, you know, I can't stand about that Jesus guy. It's always how he loves everybody and he's always sacrificing and he gives and gives and gives. I can't stand that guy. No one ever says that. So if they're rejecting, we wear our our rejection by the world sometimes like a badge of honor. You know, Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. We go, yeah, they all hate me. The reason they hate me is because they hate Jesus. I just want to ask you, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be offensive. I just want to ask you to think about this. Maybe, maybe ask yourself this question. Do they hate you because you love Jesus? Or do, or let me ask it this way. Do they hate Jesus, therefore they hate you? Or do they hate you, and therefore they hate Jesus? See, we need to be people that the people look at and go, wow, that, the, the person who loves me unconditionally is a follower of Jesus. I want to know that Jesus. And, and guys, this isn't a, a sermon on sexual sin. That's not the point at all. The point is, if we're seen as being judgmental, first and foremost, we're not being seen as Jesus. And the point is not for us to be seen at all. The point is for him to be seen. And so we need to be really careful about that. They're not rejecting Jesus. They might be rejecting us. And Jesus spoke strongly about this. In, in, in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not judge lest you will be judged. And again, he's not talking about discernment between right and wrong. He's talking about separating people out and rendering judgment. That is God's place, not ours. Truth is incredibly important, but remember, Jesus is filled with grace and truth, not one or the other. So, Jesus wants us to know in this story that he has every intention of rendering judgment and we should take that seriously. We should know that Jesus actually does judge sin. And the day is coming when there will be no more second chances, there will be no more opportunities, it will be the end of the age, and at that time, the reaping will be done. And when the reaping is done, he will separate the tares from the wheat. He will separate the sheep from the goats. He told these stories again and again, and every time he made it clear, he's the one that does the judging. So the time of harvest is coming, and it's getting closer every day. And our role as missionaries is getting more and more urgent all the time because of that. But when the time is right, 
the one and only righteous judge, he will step in and judge. Until then, let's follow the lead of Jesus, who was full of grace and full of truth, and hurting people flocked to him. There's a time and a place for judgment. But some things are better left in the hands of God. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we just want to thank you so much that uh, you have only asked us to do that which you have qualified us to do. We thank you that you've forbidden us to do that which you have not called and qualified us to do. So we thank you that you're a perfect judge. We thank you that you're a gracious judge. We thank you that you're a loving and kind father. And we pray, God, that you would help us to draw nearer to you every day, that we would take seriously as your followers your truth, your standards of righteousness, and that we would strive to walk with Jesus and therefore walk like Jesus. But Father, give us the heart of Jesus. Help us to have the eyes of Jesus so that when we look, we don't just see a prostitute, a beggar, a drug addict, a thief, but that we see a person who is hurting and lost in need of a Savior, just as we once were. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your grace is enough. We pray that you would not just pour it into our lives, but through our lives to others. And we give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.